Welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast about environmental education. In this show, I speak with educators and other people in the environmental sector about their experiences and perspectives on helping people to connect with the natural world. This episode, I'm joined by Andy Chandler-Grevitt, Senior Lecturer in the School of Education at the University of Brighton. Andy's research interests include science education, teacher well-being, recruitment, and retention. But in this episode, Andy joins the show to talk about a side project, Moss Safaris. He talks about some of the amazing animals that can be found living in moss, and shares his experience developing the activity and the accompanying resources. Here's my conversation with Andy. Hello, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Victor. Good to see you. Um, so, Andy, we met uh, a couple weeks ago at the Association for Science Education Conference. And as always, it's good to kind of get to know the guests before we jump into the topic that we're talking about today. So I was wondering if you could tell us a, a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got interested in, in nature. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, so I've been interested in nature since I was a kid, as far back as I can remember. I used to collect up wood lice in the garden and everything and just be interested in anything to do with wildlife, um, collecting stuff from the garden, watching tadpoles grow, all that sort of stuff. So it's always been part of my life. And um, I used to have a microscope as a child and used to look at insect wings and stuff like that and lots of pre-prepared slides that you could get and, and lots of spices and um, things like that that my gran had in our kitchen. I don't know quite why, but those were the sort of things I looked at. Um, and then I um, went on and did a biology degree eventually um, and then did a master's in um, environmental um, science, crop production in the changing environment of all things. And that was just the time when the first IPCC report came out. So climate change and all that was uh, hitting hitting the headlines and it's interesting to see how that's all moved on. Anyway, that's what I did then. And then I became a teacher, a science teacher, secondary school. I did that for about 10, uh, 12 years. And then I got into teacher training. I got a doctorate around that time in science education as well. I've got a lot of interest in how children learn, um, how we can support learning and how we assess learning. So I'm very interested in how we can make judgments about what children know and how we make decisions about what they um, what they present to us, how we, as a teacher, we make decisions about what to do next. So those are the things I find really interesting. I write for Oxford University Press and am their editor of their um, Smart Activate uh, series, which is a key stage three textbook. And um, I also work for the ASE doing research into teacher retention. And Mossafari is just a little sideline that I find really interesting and it's taken off a bit. So I can tell you more about that in a minute, but that's where I've got to now. Awesome. Yeah. And, and we will dive into the Moss Safari because that's that's what you were presenting uh, about at the ASE conference. It's lovely, quirky, and absolutely fascinating. We'll dive into it in just a second. Um, when you think back to those early days kind of getting into nature and natural history, I'm curious where the adults in your life were in terms of fostering that interest in science and natural history? Were they really, really active, involved, or were they kind of a bit more in the background, just letting things happen? No, I think I've got some really strong influences. So um, my, my grandmother, 
she had lots of books on her shelves that were all natural history stuff. They were all nature stuff that I remember, and they were quite high up, so I always had to ask for them to look at them. And often when you open them, there was pressed flowers in there and pressed leaves and stuff of things she'd found. And she knew bird songs. She knew all the different types of birds. She was quite... Um, a rural person she'd grown up on farm well I don't think it was a farm but she'd grown up in 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 the countryside for sure she knew lots of stuff and both my mother and father uh, my mum was a nurse my dad worked in trades like plumbing and so on but he's always had a keen interest he was he was a freshwater fisherman he used to take me um, when I was a kid and I remember really early mornings being out and just you know sunrise and seeing eels crawled across the land and seeing birds go past and all that sort of stuff so it's always been around me um and even now my parents watch the birds from their from their um, house and name them and, and all the rest of it so um it's it's always been part of me i'm i'm the sort of odd one in terms of academia i've gone academic which that wasn't ever you know i'm the first i'm a first generation scholar i've went first one in my family to go to university they always see it as a bit quirky but very proud, proud but quirky. So I think that, that that's where my influences have been. Um, interestingly, my sister, who grew up exactly the same environment, isn't as wildlife as me or into all these things, although she she is more interested in birds and gardening now she's got a little bit older. There have been strong influences, but I've definitely had something in me right from the start. Yeah, this is something that I always find fascinating to hear about and then reflect on is is how often it is that adults are in the background of those really formative experiences and how rare it is that a really structured experience um, features as something that that really sticks with you, uh, which is something to reflect on for those of us who are in science education. Just how successful are we going to be in fostering those connections to nature if, if we only offer those highly structured experiences? Absolutely. And I think the moss safari is one of those things that I'm quite passionate about to get children um, started to it's a road to independence on it and discover their own stuff. And again, that's something we can explore in a minute, but very interested in personal histories, how we come into being a scientist or someone who just appreciates natural history or yeah. um, what, you know, the nature, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating what, what leads to that. So we've mentioned Moss Safari now a couple times, and that's that's the reason why I got you on this show to talk about Moss Safari, and also because we're we're this is an environmental nature education kind of podcast. So um, tell me a little about Moss Safari. So Moss Safari is um, taking a piece of moss from your surroundings, and there's moss everywhere. Just taking a piece, making sure it's nice and wet, giving it a soak if you need to, and then squeezing it out onto a 
a microscope slide and popping it under a microscope and seeing what lives in there. And um, I set this up as a safari. We go on a journey to find what's living in there. And we have a set of things we look for. And I do this with children and adults. And it, I, I can lead it so that they can, I can do it on a big screen so they can see it and I can narrate what we see. Um, and then usually they go off and have a go themselves and see what they can find in their own moss. So that's the basis of it. But Moss Safari, whole thing is, is bringing together that sense of discovery but also giving a bit of knowledge so that you actually can see what you're doing and, and have an aim when you're doing it. Because there's a whole load of things in a droplet of uh, moss water, moss squeeze, I call it. Um, when you see that, you can feel overwhelmed. You can feel wow and awe, but to try and work out what's in there is um, can be challenging and off-putting. So if we have actual things to look for, that helps at the engagement. How did you get started with Moss Safari? Yeah, so um, strangely, uh, when I was a kid, probably about seven, my parents bought me a microscope, um, and that's uh, in the loft somewhere. But then again, again when I was in my uh, mid-40s, they bought me another one for Christmas that had been on my wish list for a very long time. And um, they just decided, I don't know, an act of generosity to buy me a, a microscope for Christmas. And um, at that time, I had a very good colleague who sadly passed on before his time, but uh, Jonathan Bacon, he's a professor of um, of neurobiology in retrofact, but he um, he did uh, had a sideline in tardigrades and which are microscopic organisms, and he introduced me to a moss squeeze, and I ran with it from there, and I haven't stopped looking and studying my the moss from my roof and anywhere else I can find moss really. So that's what got me into it, which was about I think about five six years ago, and now. Um, it, is, it developed because I got so into it, I wanted to share it with my trainees. So I just, and it's related. So, you know, just a bit of um, extra fun, showed them it before I'd actually developed the Moss Safari itself. I just showed them. And then that made me realize all these things. They loved it, but they felt that they couldn't do it themselves. They didn't feel they had the information. They didn't feel they had the knowledge. Um, they wanted me to come in and do it instead um, with their students and all those sort of things. And that's when I developed the Safari mode because it equips teachers and children, their students, to have a go themselves with something to actually look for and aim for. So you've mentioned how this could be a little bit off-putting, just just looking at the drops of water under under the microscope. And I think on on the one side, you'll have people who will think, no, when you put anything on a, under a microscope, it's fascinating because you've got things that you never thought would be there, things you'd never thought you'd be able to see, but this tool makes them all visible. And while I think that is true, I think I think what you've said is, is also true that after that initial kind of wow moment of these strange things that you're looking at, it can become off-putting. Um, could you talk a, a little bit about how you developed your moss safaris to kind of counteract that getting stuck phase? Absolutely. Well, I think part of it was because I got stuck as well. So I made myself some rules because although I've got the biology training, but background experience, it was quite a while ago. And um, so when I first saw the organisms, I decided I wasn't going to spend time trying to name them. I was just going to give them my own names. So whenever I saw something, I gave it a name. So I had hairy racers, which are in a cilia that races around, got emerald batons, which are bits of cyanobacteria. I just gave them names. Um, and um, that 
that helped and you're going to see my early little journals of it you can see i've just got and my file names are still some of those things in there um as well so i try to avoid that sort of feeling that i had to identify everything i i almost was imagining that this was the first time anybody had seen this stuff and i was going to be the discoverer i was going to i wanted that sense of discovery i wanted that sense of trying to understand what i was seeing and so that i was trying to capture with moss safari and then the issues face. So the first year I did it with my trainees, it was face to face and um, it was much harder to they, we found a tardigrade and we projected it on the screen and they thought that was the most amazing thing. They were taking selfies of themselves with the tardigrade. So, you know, there's lots of enthusiasm and a lot of interest. But when it came to the crux of, well, are you going to do this with your students? How are you going to do it with your year sevens or your year elevens? How are you going to do this? There was that apprehension. There was that, well, we don't know what we're looking at. Um, you know far more than we do. So there was that sense of uh, lack of knowledge. And I even said, well, it doesn't matter. You can just you can just go with it. Let's discover together. But there was this sense of needing to have a little bit more knowledge than the students when looking in. So the following year, and I feel like the following year or the year after was um, lockdown when we were doing everything online. And so I had to do it online um, through um, through Teams. So I did that, but set up the Moss Safari with the idea of finding the big five. So if you go on a, a um, regular macro safari in, in Africa or wherever you go, you find uh, you have your top five, your elephant, tiger. No, it won't be a tiger in Africa. Uh, anyway, lion and all the rest of it. There's the big five that you look for. And so after my experiences and a bit of research, I decided on the big five for um looking at low magnifications times 40 um, of what you like to see in moss, what you can see. And these are all the multicellular organisms I concentrated on at this point because the single-celled ones are quite hard to identify. I mean, some very clear ones, but others are a bit hard to identify. So we've got these big five and they are, here we go. The first one um, are the mites, uh, the moss mites. And then we've got uh, rotifers which are wheel animals, uh, which bring out little little wheels that whisk round and uh, they're ciliated, hairy sort of things that bring food into their mouths. Um, then nematodes, which there's loads of them, then worm-like creatures. The tardigrade, which once everybody, once you know what a tardigrade is, it becomes your favourite. Everybody loves a tardigrade. And then finally, the elusive gastrich, which is known as a hairy belly, belly um, which is just like this hairy worm that just whizzes around. I've, I still haven't got a photograph of them. Um, I see them rarely, and when I do, they just whiz. Um, and so they're quite hard to, to see. But you've got this five um, that are my, um, my, my, my big five. There is also something else, springtails. Now, my rule was everything had to be under a millimetre, and most springtails are about a millimetre. So um, one of the big things I talk about is everything we're going to see is less than a millimetre. So it sort of gives that sense of scale. So you do occasionally see a springtail in there as well, which is just outside, but an interesting um, addition. Yeah, and they can. I can imagine that compared to some of the other ones, they're like really huge, actually, because... There's a, uh, a lot of the springtails can be can be quite big. I really like this approach of actually we're going to start by coming up with our own names for these things because I think that is that's certainly something that any teacher can do even with no background experience. It's like we can just use our language arts skills. We can come up with some nice descriptive names from them. We're going to use our adjectives that we've been talking about, um, and we're going to come with our own names. The the thing I really love about that is 
that is how science works. Someone 100, 200 years ago looked at these things. They're like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to describe it and then I'm going to give my own name. And then they just happened to be the first one to get their name published in a paper somewhere. And then now it's the the official name, you know, Absolutely. so you're kind of replicating that experience, which I think is great. Yeah, and that's what I think is very good. And I've actually thinking about the springtail, I called that one a blue monster because it is so much bigger than other stuff. And it suddenly appeared it crawling through my through my uh, field of view and it just took over the heart, you know, and it was just this bluey color um, the first time I came across one. And I was, um, you know, and I've got files again, still called blue monsters because um, those are the things that I found before I knew what they were. So that sense of discovery is the thing I want to, want to capture and you know to get the wows i did a demonstration with a head of uh, um at a head of science conference um earlier uh, late last year and you know all adults all you know people who have been in the job for a while you know perhaps a little jaded very tired people just trying to get stuff done and to show them a moss safari and to hear their reactions when we saw organisms and um different organisms and um you know, just to get that from adults as well as kids is amazing. You know, I think that that is um, that sense of discovery and that sense of knowing that you're the only person, you're like, well, you're the only people in the room that's likely to ever see that particular organism because, you know, it's the, the one and only chance we've got to see that particular organism right there at that time in its life. So I just find that quite amazing as well. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that for for a lot of classes if you were to do it, like they a lot of the kids won't have ever seen them before. So you won't you you are less likely to get that thing with one kid who knows everything about it. it it's kind of a a fair it's likely to be an even playing field. Um I guess, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And even yeah. experience with microscopes has really decreased because during lockdown they weren't getting experience at school. Mm. So when I when I've been going in recently, um, some of the year nine students haven't had a go on a microscope since uh, well in in their um, secondary experience. So you know some of them just didn't know how to use one, um, which was you know quite quite alarming. Um, so you know from that perspective, tardy grades are rising in popularity. So it's quite interesting. Um, seeing more and more students knowing about tardigrades. So um, that's the only one. The other things they don't necessarily know anything about, but they, they remember the names really well, which really surprises me. Yeah. I, well, I always find that I always find it amusing when people are scared of teaching kids science terminology. I was like, no, kids love learning mm -hmm. hard words because then it's, then it's like a, they can show off to their parents and their friends that, ooh, I learned this big fancy word today. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And they will reel off what they've seen. So primary school children, I go and see primary, I've been in primary school. And to be honest, I'm a bad because, you know, it's a typical uh, secondary school teacher thing. I underestimate this, the primary school children and what they know and what they can do and, and how they perceive things. And um, I'm blown away by how they describe what they see and um, what they know. Um, you know, I was talking about well, where have you seen moss and stuff, and they tell you the standard things. Then one pipes up, oh, well, it's the main diet of reindeer in, you know, in go, what? what? Where did that come from? You know, it's like, that's amazing. Um, and so um, I'm learning more and more about how to pitch it for them. But most of them haven't had experience with a microscope unless they've got a microscope at home. Um, so, you know, it's a real sort of rite of passage almost for secondary school students to, to have that first go at a microscope. Yeah. I'm also loving this thought of 
having kids write up descriptions of the things that they're seeing and then almost having like an academic conference and trying to decide whether or not they've seen the same animal or not based on their descriptions and then like fighting over who has naming rights over the <laughs> that would be amazing that'd be amazing i did i did a series of sessions over several weeks as a science club at a very local school to me so i could just pop down there um once a week and we did it over a series of weeks and actually that would have been a really interesting way to go about it just do an introduction and then go right i want you all to have a look and come up with what you think the big five are from what you've seen or the big three top three whatever it is you want to do and then see if they come up with the same one you often find that it's they start labeling each other though because you get the the kid that's got all the all the nematodes under there and they go oh it's a nematode kid we'll go and have a look at his nematodes and then there'll be other one you know so they've got it's quite interesting how they start to to talk and then you get the air bubble kid as well I had that at one of my uh one of, where, where he's got i've just got air bubbles and everything is this something no it's an air bubble so you just have that sort of interaction as well um and he decided he was going to name an air bubble after himself as well so it's quite it's interesting how they engage because they engage in a completely different way to the way I do. Um, and I, I, I love that, you know, I love yeah. seeing their perceptions of it. I, I love the idea of it. Suddenly they become like experts in the stuff that they've seen in their particular sample. And they're like, is this a thing? It's like, Oh, that person's got had loads of those go and check with that person. Yeah. That's really Absolutely. neat. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your, um, big five, uh, it's like Safari lookout sheet. I think you've gone through a couple different iterations now, I think you mentioned, and yep. um, the content on it has shifted slightly. Could you talk me through like your, your development process? Like, How did that sheet start out compared to where it is now? So the sheet start with started out for a sort of aid memoir for my trainees. So it was sort of pitched at, at sort of people with some science experience of some kind. Um, and then I adapted it. I wrote an article based on the experience experiences of my trainees of um, engaging with Mosafari. And so I um, developed some for that publication. So that was uh, in School Science Review. Um, and then when I went to primary school, I suddenly realized I needed something a bit more accessible for the primary school children. So I've got a very, I started to draw some of the organisms myself because I thought, well, we need some outlines because the photos are quite difficult to work out exactly what there is. So I started to draw some outlines. So I've got a for primary school children, I've got the name of the organism. I've got a, a drawing of what it classically looks like under the microscope, and then a photograph um, of it and a tick box of whether you've seen it. So it's very based on um, on visuals, basically. And then the secondary version has got some descriptors in it um, of the types of things to look for. Um, so how the animal moves. Um, I uh, talk about different modes, which isn't the best scientific way, but the, you know, most of these animals have a sort of sleep mode, a walking, a moving mode, um, a, a sort of a status mode as well, where they're not, they're just sort of all um, protecting themselves for that, from environmental change. So you've got these sort of ways of looking at behavior as well. So it starts to move from just sort of identifying the organism to looking at their behavioral characteristics, how they move and so on. Um, that's not to say with the primary ones, we don't do, I've got a booklet with the primary school ones where they have a picture of each of the organisms and then it's key um, adaptations. And then they have to color in the adaptations based on um, descriptors. So um, that's proved quite popular in the primary schools I've, I've used it with. And they're completely downloadable, freely downloadable from, from my website. It's not really a website, it's sort of a blog type website called Mosafari and people just download those. 
and I'll put links of it um, in the notes for this this podcast episode as, as well because they're great. I, I love the concept of of the big five because you know there'll be potentially any number of other things that you could find. But as you say, some of them can be really difficult to identify. Some of them might just be like tiny dots moving around because you're not we're not at particularly high magnification here times times 40 is not that strong absolutely i've gone up i have got one for the uh single cell so i have got a a big five of the single cells which i call at higher magnification um which um i just i've chosen ones that are very distinctive so um amoeba and uh testate amoeba those are the ones in shells there's something called the vorticella which is just like, um, I called it a retracting whisk because it's a single cell that just whisks the water. And it's on this sort of cord that's like a bungee rope. And when you disturb it, it pings back, it coils up. Um, So, and I actually know when I see one now, if you tap the the microscope, you can make them retract. Um, And that always gets a wow when when you actually see one. Yeah, I usually find them in... um, in samples that I've left a, uh, a week or so on my, they seem to be a bit later in the succession of <laughs> of what happens in a in a sample. So they they appear a little bit later quite often, but um, they they will will be there. So I have got the sort of, but I'm not confident. So I, not as confident in that one in terms of how regularly you'll see those things. You know, it'll be the chance the chance thing that you see, whereas you're pretty certain you'll see a rotifer and a nematode in every sample. So, you know, you'll get a hit in every more sample of a rotifer or a, or a nematode. So you've always got a chance of seeing something. Yeah. And I guess that's the thing with um, where, how safaris are, are organized is, is one around things that are going to be kind of impressive for the people who are looking at it, uh, who, are, who are on the safari, but then also that you're actually going to be likely to find. And then maybe one or two, one or two of the options might be like really special if we see one of these um that kind of thing i guess you've structured this in a similar way yeah absolutely yeah pretty much and um i do it all by randomness so when i do a mosfari i don't know what's in the samples i just get a bit of moss and i squeeze it and i have been talking about whether to actually um set up um some slides that people can see because if you don't see a tardigrade there's a big sense of disappointment now part of me thinks that will you come back and do another one um but you know there is this sort of sense of um trying to get people trying to give people experiences so i can show them videos of them but there's nothing like seeing your own if you like your own discovery your own own one and i part part of that is for me, that's part of it. You know, if you come away only seeing one of them, then well, that's that's you know nature. That's the nature of science. You know, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's what happens when you go on a safari and when you work with with wildlife. That's the the old saying, which I always joke like working in this kind of outdoor environmental education. The the old saying is never work with animals or children. And here I am doing both together. <laughs> I and mean, like, what am I? <laughs> Because you never know what the kids are going to do, and you never know what animals are going to turn up because they're wild animals. Absolutely, story of my life. That one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, wonderful. So, um, I guess could you, if you've, if you had to pick like two favorite um, things to find on a moss safari, what what would they be? All right. Okay. I think. Um, because of the stories associated with them, and I think this is another part of Mosafari, is the more I read about these organisms, the more absolutely fascinated I am. I mean, I, I, there's things that I didn't know two years ago about these things. In fact, there's things that we didn't, as 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 
um, a science didn't know a couple of years ago about some of these things as well. So it's a it's a live science, and that's very important. Again, I can tell trainees, well, I can tell trainees, but particularly students, it seems to work well with secondary students. You can do PhDs in these things. We still need to know stuff. We're still trying to find out. So these those parts are are really important. So I think if I just give you um, an example of two of mine. So first, I'm going to do the rotifer. The rotifer. Um, just to give you a description in case you, you don't know what one is, um, uh, the ones that I get most commonly in my moss are called belloid rotifers, and they uh, it means leech-like, and they move like a leech. So they sometimes are, in, when they're in walking mode, as I would call it, they eat like an inchworm, they move along like an inchworm. Um, and they've got these two toes at the end of their body, and they've got these... Uh, wheel organs at the other end of their body, which are folded away, protected, but when they are feeding, they latch themselves to a surface with their two toes, and then they reach out into the water and create great big currents for them, big currents for them, um, through these rotating organs, which are just hairs um, that they move round and round and round, and it brings it into their mouth parts. And their mouth parts are fascinating in themselves. There's a, a muscular bit called the, the mastix. And then there's two jaws called the trophy. And they just, um, and I'm actually doing it, although you can't see this on a podcast, but I'm, I'm putting my fists together to show how they move backwards and forward. And you can actually see the food going through that's collected, go through the, the trophy, be mashed up. Some of it goes into the gut and the rest all comes out. Um, just as you'd expect out, well, um, out of the um, the rotifer. So they have this um, adaptation that's amazing for eating, uh, for feeding. They have amazing adaptations for moving around, but they also have a huge survival um, strategy, um, which is absolutely amazing. They can go into sort of a, a a very extreme hibernation, often the, the children will equate it to hibernation, where their bodies will actually go through a biochemical change and they can protect themselves from uh, lack of water, um, maybe high temperatures, various other things. So these are a kind of extremophile. Um, I'm coming more and more to the idea that um, moss as an environment is an extreme environment because it goes through so many changes. So all the organisms that live in here are quite um, adapted to extreme things. but the amazing thing about these rotifers, um, they're all female. Um, we haven't found any males, so we assume they're all female. And they um, tell us a lot about reproduction in terms of, well, how, you know, because most, if we think about if you do asexual reproduction, actually that can be quite damaging because you're all clones, but they seem to have some way of um, jazzing up their DNA, mixing up a bit. So they're actually, um, they're different from one another. Um, but the um, thing about them, going uh this sort of status thing i always think about well you know if you if you go into stasis you'll wake up you know in a day or so or a couple of weeks or something like this but they've just just uh, a couple of years ago they woke up the from an ice core rotifers that were twenty four thousand years old this was in siberia twenty four thousand years being asleep and then woken up and and the ones that were there were able to reproduce as well so they were perfectly healthy they're able to reproduce and if we research some of the uh, the research that's done on these organisms gives us some insights into aging um how our, the biochemical pathways of aging um gives us some idea about you know protective genes how you know what genes how genes protect us um and and other organisms as well and i just find that level of uh, that difference um in something so small and so seemingly insignificant can 
you know, survive extreme um, conditions in that way and for such a long time. I mean, I just find that incredible. Um, the other thing we can do because of those trophy, which are hard parts, those teeth, those jaws, those are left when animals um, die um, and they can get fossilized. And some of them are in um, ice cores and things like that. And you can actually, uh, they can be used as biological indicators. You can work out um, which sort of animals they come from. So they can be part of that as well, which for us as humans, we can find out about climate change and things like that using some of the indicators, probably in combination with other things as well. But uh, rotifers are the answer there. So that's that's just rotifers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, amazing stuff. Yeah, I find that is really fascinating. The the hard parts, and then they they can fossilize. That means, well, I'm, soft tissues can fossilize too, but they're more yeah. likely to. And there, it's one of those things you mentioned it a bit earlier, where it, it is a live science, particularly with really tiny things, because there's just not that not as many people study them because they're not as flashy and jazzy as birds and butterflies that get all kind of all the attention. Um, but microfossils are, as you say, like really important for measuring climate change because rotifers are incredibly common, which means we can find their fossils over like all over the place. And that means that we can track how they change over time. Yeah, this is really fascinating. The other comment that struck me there was how extreme an environment mosses are, because I think you're, it's a, uh, a thing to think about while well, I'm doing a series of, of episodes, underloved habitats, I guess, that, that don't get all the attention they deserve. And something that's often missed in is that in the primary curriculum, microhabitats is a thing. Absolutely. Yep. And that's the way I go in with with my uh, the curriculum relevance of, of Moss Safari is it's a microhabitat and an extreme microhabitat. And so, um, you know, it's something that you can link to the curriculum. But, you know, for me, that, although that is very useful and the adaptations part, it is the nature of science that's the bit that's so fascinating to me and so important to get across to children, which teachers aren't always feeling as equipped to do. And I think, you know, to get that sense of discovery, that sense of excitement and that sense of there's room for me to do science, there's room for me to do research. Um, yeah. That is the thing I want children leaving to know that they can do it as a hobby, but they could do it as a career as well. And, though, you know, it isn't closed to anyone. This is a, an opportunity to uh, you, you can take if you wanted to. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's the great thing there. Yeah. Um, Right, your your second uh, favorite find Absolutely. of the So it has to be the tardigrade because people love them. So if you don't know what a tardigrade is, just look them up on the internet. You will find loads of images. People are obsessed. This whole website's just completely um, uh, uh, sort of wor worshiping them and fascinated. So basically, um, imagine a blob of plasticine or something with eight legs attached to it and a little snout and then put some big claws on each of the legs and um, make it move very slowly like it's moonwalking and you have a tardigrade and these are very odd creatures they are known as the most resilient creature on earth they've been sent to space we've accidentally dumped some on the moon an israeli satellite that had some on there they were experimenting on crashed and there's some in the moon dust now just probably in what's called their ton state which is their their state that they can just survive in once they get into a ton which means basically they go through a biochemical process where they um, remove most of the water from their bodies and they just go into a stasis again they just remain like that and they can survive radiation 
extreme heat, extreme pressure, um, and lack of water, obviously. They've got a huge tolerance. And as humans, we're fascinated. How can they do that? And we do really weird things like them. So we, we, we shoot them from a gun on a bullet to see whether they can survive that. And I don't know quite who came up with that particular experiment, but I always think that, well, that was a, that's a bit extreme in itself. But they can survive these things. But when they're in their squishy phase, when they're in their lovely, they look almost cuddly apart from the big claws. Because the big claws, are, if, they, if you had a life-size one, they'd be a bit scary with the claws. But they do look like you could hug them they look teddy bear like and they're called water bears because they look a bit like bears um and tardy grains tardy grade means slow walker so they do have this sort of moonwalk about them and they just sort of amble along and they're just very cute and you can watch them for a long time quite often you can see two little red eyes that are only a single cell each but they're they're little red eyes so they've got carrot they've got there's something there's something um attractive to humans about them we can somehow relate to them in some way um but as, when they're in their normal walking around phase they they can die very easily i've accidentally squashed one under a microscope before just you know you just oh my god and i feel bad suddenly and i'm going oh my gosh you know because it's you suddenly have a respect for these organisms and it's the most resilient one in the world and you just feel a bit bad about that um but um they also have got these other amazing things that they do so there's there's two main types they're quite hard to identify on species level but there's the u-tardigrade which is the squidgy one and then there's the heterotardigrade which is the one that's like an armored version um i don't know I, I don't know if you um in his dark materials the philip pullman there's a bear that has armor and it doesn't it, it sort of reminds me of that because these have this sort of these uh these layers of armor but they're quite ornate so they've got quite large spikes and things on them um and they're usually a red color um and again you can see them under the microscope quite well and that's those are the that's as far as you usually get unless you really want to learn how to identify them um there's people out there that do it and you can look at their claws and you can look at their mouth parts but most of the time we just like watching them moving around interacting with their environment um so um so they've got these extreme things again mainly female though males do exist they, there is uh footage of um mating behavior um, something that fascinates me because we, we remove ourselves. So I just squeeze out moss and look at it and look at what comes out of it in the microscope. But it took me a couple of years to start to appreciate the moss itself, okay, and how moss is. And moss is fascinating. It's been, you know, it's one of the first land plants. It's absolutely, you know, it's been around for a very long time. It was pre dinosaurs, pre or, you know, pre a lot of the um, organisms that live on land. And it's had a long time to have co adaptations happen, so co evolution to go on. And it turns out that tardigrades and some of the other organisms, particularly tardigrades, can actually pollinate moss. So moss has male parts and female parts, as lots of plants do, but they're quite in different places within the moss ecosystem. And you need to get moss. It produces um, sperm cells, which often surprise people because you often think just animals produce sperm, but um, but uh, they uh, mosses produce these uh, sperm cells that swim through the water layer and try and get to to the female um, sex organs, and the female sex organs do produce um, a pheromone, and it turns out that somewhere along in evolution, that um, the sperms can get uh, just attach themselves to a tardigrade and as it ambles around it can pollinate but now now i don't know quite which way it works but the the moss um female parts will actually produce a pheromone that attracts the tardigrade the tardigrade will go ambling actively to that part and actually 
not knowingly, but will deposit the, the well, I don't know. I mean, it could knowingly do it, but deposit the sperm there. Um, and I just find that in that micro level. I mean, when you look at the, the distances, they're huge distances for a tardigrade. You know, they're only small for us. And I just find that sort of interaction and how they found out as well, just absolutely incredible. You know, I just find how scientists find out things on that level, absolutely incredible. So not only have we got tardigrades being an amazing extremophile um, organism uh, on our roofs, you know, or in the pavement, you know, it's just living there. We don't have to go to under a deep sea vent or anything. It's right there. It's right on our doorstep. You can find these organisms. Um, but they've got amazing adaptations that, you know, you, you just don't appreciate until you do a bit of reading and learn a bit more about them. Um, and to, to understand what their their world is like inside moss. And this is the thing um, I'm really sort of trying to think about more now is what is it like to be in moss, to be an organism that lives in moss? Because the way I see all these organisms is I've just... just shattered their world i've just squeezed out their world and they're just under the you know everything's chaos for them um and um, they do carry on just behaving you know eating and moving around they don't seem to really notice but obviously they're they're very disjointed so i'm really interested in how maybe we can look at these organisms in in situ how you can actually see what it is and what they do within the moss plant itself which is like a mini forest you know it's like a mini forest that has different layers like a forest would um and um there will be difference in the environment as well so it's wetter down the bottom and drier at the top and all those things more light at the top as well so just amazing so tardigrades are the most attractive when people see a tardigrade that makes their day you know and to be honest whenever i find one it makes my day you know and i've been doing it quite a while now it just there's something um really rewarding about them and fascinating about them yeah it's super lovely and, and it is uh, it is interesting to think about what the world would be like from their perspective because as you mentioned that you know moss we think of moss as just the tiny green fuzzy stuff that's growing on the ground but from from a tardigrade's perspective you know they're sort of less than a millimeter like half a millimeter or something like that 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 is an enormous scale for them. Like it's an enormous habitat. When you look at these creatures, they're essentially suspended in a drop of water. So you've taken yep. them also from, you can imagine them clambering around through the moss and, and there will be um, uh, like a, a water film there that they'll be able to navigate through as well. But you've taken them from that habitat to suddenly they're in this like aquatic habitat floating around. Like that must be very strange for them. Yeah, yeah. it is. And, I, and from what I understand, I still haven't actually got absolute evidence for this but i don't believe they can swim i don't believe tardigrades swim um they've got they, they use these large claws to to they seem to be happier if that's the right word on a substrate so they like to be they cling on to lumps of moss or they cling on to some people when they're 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 breeding them um they will use a plastic petri dish and actually sandpaper the bottom so they they can get purchased and move around on on that so they're they that's also quite interesting you know a waterborne animal that can't swim i i just find that but if you look at some of the marine ones that live in really marine uh, really fast moving water um they actually have suckers on the end of their claws that hold on to to the substrate so i just you know again it just gets wilder and wilder the more you the more you read and the more you find out yeah, super fascinating. Loads to discover in these in these teeny tiny worlds. I'm now super excited to go off and do it. I've been meaning to since since the conference, but uh, that that will come. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, 
yeah it does come but i have mine i, I know that uh, view uh, the listeners can't see but i've as you can see i've got two microscopes set up on my desk so i can always and there's always moss somewhere soaking so i can always just dip in <laughs> and have a quick look at something because that's the only way i definitely do it you know it's a way of just sort of having it handy setting it up takes a little bit once you've got the setup it, it's very very easy to do yeah. And I mean, moss is one of those things that you can find pretty much everywhere. It doesn't matter how much green space you have because it just grows on walls. And as you say, like on yep. the pavement, and that kind of thing. Yep. Um, I'm curious, have you found, have you had like different levels of success or have you noticed differences in what you find in different types of moss or moss growing in different places like wall moss versus, you know, forest floor moss, that kind of thing? Well, that's a, that's a really good question because that's something I'd love to find out more about. And I, I know you've talked about citizen science in some of your um, podcasts, and I, I think, you know, there's a great opportunity to do some sort of citizen science of looking at different types of moss in different types of places and seeing the organisms that live in there. Um, I've got a very, I've got a standard way of doing my moss squeeze, as I call it, because I find that if you just squeeze out the moss, you do get some organisms, but not as many as quite you like. And when I want to do a, a, a moss safari in front of people, I want to maximize my chances. So what I do is I actually put it through a filter paper first, but I don't catch the filtrate, or the bit that comes out the bottom of the filter paper, because that's the bit people often think you get and you don't get very much in there at all. I just, before it's all filtered out in the little corner, bottom corner of your filter paper, just squeeze that out with the pet. And that's a nice concentrated area. Most of your um, multicellular organisms will be trapped in that little area. And that's when you get your, your field day, your your lots of organisms to see. So that would be my top tip. Make sure when you do do this, try and filter it first. You just need, I mean, you could do it with a bit of tissue, but you know, you can use filter paper or, or, um, or a coffee filter if you don't have proper filter paper, you know, you can do that sort of stuff. So um, that's sort of my tip. And then I, um, my main studies, if you want to call them studies, are from my roof. Um, so moss is knocked down by birds and various other things onto my patio. And when I go out, let the dogs out and stuff like that, I usually pick up a piece of moss. Um, and I've started to say whether I picked it up from the front or the back, so east, south, west, so there's different places like that. Um, and I haven't got any great correlations or anything yet about what I've, you know, what I found. Although I find that I'm finding more of the same organisms, you know, I, I'm getting to a point where I'm almost saturated, for of a better word, uh, the number of organisms I will find. Um, um, I, I mean, I do get still get surprises, but it's much less often now. Um, so, you know, I can usually um, identify most of the things I've got in there and more, you know, there's occasionally things I can't, but, you know, sense of discovery, but you've got this constant thing so now when i go out dog walking and stuff like that much to my partner's dismay i'm forever stopping and picking up lumps of moss and um and and i found that do, uh, the uh, the dog bags that you carry with you are very good for storing a bit of moss in just to get it home as well so i get a pocket full of those um so yeah i've got stuff now i find this the sphagnum mosses um the ones you find in grass which i've got one here um so these are a bit more feathery don't Unless you take the, go down to the roots, you don't get much actually on the uh, the leaves and stuff like that. It's the moss cushions that I find are the most useful. And there's some lovely ones that you get um, on tree branches, some little cushions, um, some of the tree stumps as well. Um, but walls and roofs and things like that, the one, you know, I love those, those moss cushions you get. Um, and those are the ones I seem to have most success with at the moment. That would be my, my, my guidance. 
The other thing is when you get kids to bring in moss, you say, bring in a piece of moss. It only needs to be as big as your fingernail. And they bring in a piece of moss the size of their hands. They just they can't. They don't seem to have any control over the size. It's just a, You just need a tiny bit of moss. And they come in like, I've got all of this moss, all the moss I could find. So I find that uh, quite amusing. They haven't got, but it's a sense of scale. They think, well, you know, if I've got this huge piece, um, whereas I, I, I found a branch um, uh, last year after the storm and it had all these different lichen on it so i have done a sort of experiment where um i started to look at the different lichen in there and see if there was different organisms in, in each of the different types of lichen um but i came through this little tiny tuft of moss which was only about six tufts i don't know stems don't know quite what to call it and that had so much in it just those six little stems there was uh, there was mites there were loads of tardigrades and they were actively growing in there because there were loads of tardigrade skins because they shed their skins and i've called those tardigrade ghosts because they look like little ghosts of tardigrades in the, in the water so um yeah um i do do little experiments i would like to formalize it at some point um and again with that big stick i had these big plans of doing a whole a whole series of experiments and stuff and writing something up but then then i had to go to work and <laughs> life <laughs> life gets in the way a bit <laughs> yeah yeah it is true like there's a lot of stuff that could be learned from even really simple stuff like that um okay so a great tip if you are out there curious wanting to do a moss safari go for those cushion shaped mosses and um so i will put some photos up of the mosses that you mean because i know exactly the mosses that you mean <laughs> versus the grass moss yeah the the feather yeah. mosses yeah so i'll put some photos up with the notes for this show for also I'll put up some photos of the the setup that you've described in terms in terms of the process and, and you've got some of that on your um, blog as well actually so i can Absolutely. link people to that i guess the last last kind of question is like when you are done with a moss safari how do you deal with putting things back could you like talk us through that kind of process that's a really good question because i get asked that more than you would think um now i have always i one of my big conflicts in biology is not of you know i've got this uh this thing about leaving things as they are trying you know trying to avoid killing anything and all those sort of things um so my my method is, and I, i'm not say that i I do this, but my um, every time my method is is any samples I've got, I return back into the water film, so it goes back outside, and it will. Uh, they've got part of my garden. I just put it in, and and you know they've got their chances to to take out their whatever in there. Uh, it's impossible to make sure that you've got everything off your slide, and so you know there there will be casualties. I try and rationalise it by just thinking of if you like the drama of you know the falling from the roof the um you know being pushed around eaten by a bird or pushed around by a bird or trodden on by the dog and all those things that they seem to survive um i you know so i'm not soaking them in bleach or anything but i'm giving them a chance out there i've also got a little terrarium if that's the right word over there um which i keep moist and i've got mosses growing in it and i sometimes if i find a tardigrade i particularly like i don't know quite what i don't i stand it's starting to sound a little bit crazy but a particularly tardigrade i just think oh i want to keep you i put her over there i don't know whether i'm going to find her again but it's a sort of sense of feeling that i've still got her having said that i have been known to leave samples just drying out but again you know they're used to that. That's what they do. So I can show you. I've got a petri dish here with some very dried out samples here. But I know if I pour water back on them, 90% of those organisms will come back to life. So I try and rationalize 
because you can get a little bit over sensitive. But at the same time, I I believe in especially with children as well. They treat nature with respect. You know, I know they're tiny. I know you know they're but they're not nothing. They you know I am just I'm getting pleasure from from learning about them. But at the same time, I don't have to do anything that, that deliberately hurts them, if you like. Yeah. And I think, as you say, these are quite tough organisms from quite a harsh habitat. Like if you think of mosses and, you know, they're just out there. So if we get a dry spell of weather, which is, I mean, granted we're in the UK, but we do get dry spells of weather. Um, Like it can go dry as a bone and for weeks, and then we get a spot of rain and then the mosses come back. And these animals, as you've mentioned, they're, they're adapted to drying and wetting and drying and wetting that kind of thing. So as long as you're putting things back outside when, when you're done. Yeah. Gosh, we, we've been through quite a lot, but I th- some questions we haven't covered yet, like baseline kit that you use for these, like you don't need a super mega powerful microscope. Um, what's your go-to magnification kind of level? Right. So times 40 is the best to start with. Now, depending on the microscope, you might see this, uh, you might see the organisms um, like, uh, so the uh, nematodes will just look like little threads and you'll see little tiny they they will appear very tiny um so a lot of school microscopes are like that so um the the secondary school microscopes you'll see the organisms but they'll be quite small you can go up to um the next magnification where you will see them uh, a a bit better um and a bit clearer but you won't get any great detail i've got um, microscopes um that i do the mosafaris from and that does get much bigger um, and, and you can go in with a much more detail if you wish to. But to be honest, I don't often go in because that is, that's not what it's about. It's about just seeing the organisms. So you will see, and even the, um, you can get those uh, tiny um, microscopes um, from, I think they might be like Natural History Museum ones or something like that, where you, um, they're little tiny battery operated LED ones. And you can see things moving in the water if you want to do that. But, and you might be able to see through the movement, whether it's a, a, a tardigrade or a rotifer. Um, so there's no reason to stop you doing that. But my, my advice to the students um, who ask me, can usually after a moss safari, there's one or two people that want to buy a microscope. So I say buy one that you can afford, you know, so think about what it is you can afford and buy one that is, uh, you know, the best you can afford right then. You, um, lot of, there's a lot of companies that support schools and will give you good advice. And also the Royal Microscopy Society has a thing, um, a guidance for people who want to buy a, um, a microscope. So it gives you the features to look for when you're buying one. Um, and I can give you that link as well um, for, for this. And then what you do need, ideally, is dimple slides um so those are glass slides with a little dimple in the middle sometimes called well or concave and that's so that you can get more organisms in there you don't squash them with the um with the cover slip and you need cover slips and then plastic pipettes now you can buy hundreds of plastic pipettes just for you know a couple of quid online very very easily so they're really those sort of things are really easy to come across and then that's it really um you know if some people like to have a camera attached so i've got the cameras are about 50 pounds to go in the top of a microscope you can do that um if you wish but people use their mobile phones very easily to take pictures and in fact one of the the things i do to, to encourage people to do that is to share their fo- photos online um, on Twitter, and I've got a hashtag called Mossafari ID. And so, when students are doing theirs, usually the teacher puts them online, um, and they're usually through a, a mobile phone. So it's 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 not difficult to do. Do and then that's your basic equipment. You just need some moss. You need to squeeze it out. 
suck it up with the um, pipette, stick it in the uh, well, put your cover slip on, and then just observe away. Not too much. I think most schools will have most of this equipment. And uh, even if you don't have fancy dimple dimple slides, you've got a few kind of workaround methods uh, on your blog for it. Because the key really is that you don't want to be looking through, I guess, the curved surface of a water drop because you get weird kind of distortion effects. Absolutely. So you want to try and flatten your water droplet. So I have got, um, and you can you can have a look on the blog. There is a, there is a uh, the different ways to go about that as well. So um, you can do various things like bits of um, Vaseline or use being clever with the cover slips and using more than one and stacking them up, making a bridge. Um, I've got various diagrams and stuff to help people do that. Yeah. Um, but the dimple slides again aren't expensive you can just buy them online very easily i mean really straightforward lots of wonderful things to see um i'm excited to to go on one of these safaris myself and i i hope you out there listening uh do some moss safaris of your own andy thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me it's been really fascinating thanks for coming on the show thank you so much victor and i hope you enjoy your moss safari let me know what you find that was my conversation with Andy Chandler Grevitt. You can follow Andy and his Moss adventures on Twitter at Moss Safari and find all his resources at mosssafari.wordpress.com. As always, links to resources and full show notes can be found using the link in the description or go to knowing or go to the new Knowing Nature website at knowingnature.cc. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.